Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. As the kids return to their seat this morning, I would normally say, turn with me now to this passage. We're going to continue our walk through whatever book we're looking at. Uh, But in our preaching cycle, there's kind of three cycles to, to our preaching schedule. We, we spend some time in an Old Testament book, and we've been looking at Hosea. Then we spend some time in a New Testament book. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark. And then we have a third section uh, th- that we tackle either some particular different passage or, like we're going to do this time, we, we dive into a particular doctrine uh, and, and look at what the Bible has to say about that doctrine. And so that's what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks leading up to Advent. We're going to be looking at the doctrine of the providence of God, which is, frankly, you need far more than three weeks to tackle this. And, and, but we've got three weeks. And so we're going to kind of narrow the focus. Uh, but before we jump in, I, I want to address why I think it's important that we spend some time thinking about the providence of God. Because it's not an easy thing to think about, and, and, and there's some aspects of it that aren't particularly fun to think about. But Michael Horton gives three reasons why this doctrine should matter for us. First, he says, it's comforting to know that God's plan A is sure to be realized because God is working everything, even our sins and mistakes in judgment, as well as external threats and calamities, together for good. That means that that there's there's not God's plan A of of blessing and, and satisfaction which by our bad decisions or lack of discernment or whatever, we, we fall out of into some plan B that is marred by suffering and misery because God's trying to kind of, via affliction, get us back into plan A. That's not how it works. There's just plan A. That, that's what it means for God to be sovereign, for him to be in control. That, that's one of the, the comforts of, of this doctrine of God's providence. Second thing that, that, that Dr. Horton says is it's comforting to be, to be liberated from the anxiety of having to figure out God's secret will for our lives and to focus on knowing his revealed word. Undoubtedly, all of us at some point have been, have been racked. We, we've been faced with some decision and we've just been, been racked with fear of making the wrong decision. Or, or, we, or we look at the, at the world and, and we see just so much out there. And we're filled with anxiety. The doctrine of God's providence addresses and ultimately undermines in the best way both our kind of existential angst or or dread that leads us to to cynical, depressed withdrawal from life and relationships. And it addresses and undermines our naively fearful attempts to reclaim some uh, supposed golden age of the past or, or, or to maintain the present or to secure some supposedly more just, verdant, and peaceful future. And it does this by focusing us again on the sovereign reign of Christ and freeing us to actually love our neighbor as we love ourselves and as we have been loved by God. The third comfort, he says, this doctrine provides is is that we are comforted by the fact that God has revealed his purposes in what seemed to human beings to be nothing more than the tragic end to a good man in the death of Jesus. In other words, God's will included 
His sustaining and governing all His creatures and all their actions and providing for redemption in Christ. All of this was the fulfillment of God's plan. So, so this doctrine, rather than, than kind of undoing us or scaring us or, or, or making us you know, fall into some fatalism, it, it, should, it should provide enormous comfort. And so we're going to look at this, this huge doctrine in, in just three kind of aspects of it. We're going to look at, the, the, this week, providence, sin, and Jesus. Next week, we'll look at providence, salvation, and Jesus. And the final week, we'll look at providence, suffering, and Jesus. Now, so, so sin, salvation, and suffering, the providence of God in, in those three things. And, and it raises this question, though, why did I add Jesus onto everything? It's not just because that's what we do here, though that's part of it. I've got to have that third word on the kid's sheet. They've got to be listening for Jesus. But it's also because when we abstract doctrines from the incarnation of Jesus Christ, they become pointless. They become nothing more than an intellectual exercise. And so if we're going to abstract doctrines from, from the person and work of Jesus Christ, we may as well talk about any other philosophical or, or, or intellectual curiosity. Because that's all doctrine is if we abstract it from Jesus. So as we dive in, I want to make a few comments about providence in general so that we know what we're talking about as we think about it in terms of sin and then suffering. There's a number of ways that people try to deal with providence. Sometimes we try to deal with the providence of God and we see the sovereign God and what seem to be these free creatures, namely you and I, and we try to figure out how to reconcile this. And one way it gets reconciled is by not leaning hard enough into the providence of God so that he's surprised by our decisions, so that he's not actually in control of everything. And that runs into a number of problems. And the key problems that it runs into is that's just simply not how he's presented in Scripture. We're going to see over and over that, that, that Scripture declares that, no, he is sovereignly ruling and reigning. He is holding all things together. Another thing that we might do is, is what's often referred to as kind of creating the, this God of the gaps. That Well, there are these naturalistic explanations to certain things. But there's some things that we don't understand. And, and so we'll say, well, this we can explain, but these gaps, we'll just plug God in there. The problem with that is, as we learn more about creation, as we're intended to do, and as we can explain more about creation, as we're intended to do, that God of the gaps gets increasingly smaller and increasingly smaller and increasingly smaller. And again... The bigger problem is, that's simply not how the Bible presents God. He's not just in charge of the things we can't understand. He's providentially ruling over all things. Uh, another kind of opposite, other side of the coin, is that we can go too far with the providence of God. Now, you may be going, wait a minute. Is, is this Reformed Presbyterian about to say we can, go, we can lean too hard into this? Yes, I am. And here's what that begins to look like. It begins to look like this hyper-supernaturalism 
where, where everything, every breath, every individual raindrop, every action, every lost hair, everything is attributed to the direct intervention of God. In other words, it removes any responsibility we might have. Now, you're sitting there going, wait, you said something about hair, and I know that the Bible says not a hair falls from our head. Yes, that is true. That's why I said the direct intervention of God. If you've gone bald, it's not because God at different times has repeatedly come down and plucked out each individual hair. It's because in your genetics, as God made you, that's how it's worked out for you. Hyper-supernaturalism, this idea that God just intercedes and, and intervenes at every single minute detail is really just kind of a baptized fatalism. And that's also not how the Bible presents things. It presents us as accountable. It, it, it tells us about a world where cause and effect is real. And so we don't have to go that route. Charles Hodge said it this way. It is best, therefore, to rest satisfied with the simple statement that preservation is that omnipotent energy of God by which all created things, animate and inanimate, are upheld in existence with all the properties and powers with which he has endowed them. In other words, he's letting us know that, yes, God is behind everything. He upholds everything, but he does this through what our confession calls secondary causes. In other words, cause and effect is real. That's why this is such a difficult doctrine. Because on the one hand, we say God is in control of everything. He's perfectly sovereign. He is the ruler of all things. He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And on the other hand, we say, and cause and effect is real. And that's how he works in and through this world to bring about his purposes. And we say we as humans are accountable. And we're not the first ones to wrestle with this. Paul had to respond to the Romans. Well, then why, why can God be mad at me if he made me this way? That was their question. And his answer, as we'll see in a few moments, was rather direct. If you want to look into this doctrine in, in our kind of confessional documents, you can look at the fifth chapter of the Westminster Confession or Questions 12 through 20 of the larger catechism or, or a handful of questions, 7, 8, 9, and 11 in the shorter catechism. I'm just going to read the last one. It asks, what are God's works of providence? And it gives this answer. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So he created everything from nothing. And then he preserves and governs all things for his purposes. So that's kind of this general picture of what we mean when we talk about the providence of God. Him working out his purposes according to his will in everything. And that raises certain questions, doesn't it? it one of the questions that it raises, and it raises a whole host of questions, we're really only going to be able to deal with three of them in this series. And the first one is, well, where does sin fit into this? How exactly does that work out? If God is sovereign and if he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, one, why, why did he foreordain sin? 
And two, if he's directed everything, how in the world could I possibly be held culpable for what, what he directed? How could we be held accountable? We've got to be careful as we deal with these questions, and we've got to live within the limits that we have. And the limits that we have are what God has revealed to us in his word. So I'm going to tell you right now, as I wrestle with this, I I do hope that there is some comfort and some clarity of thought that, that is provided for you. But I know, especially for those of you who are who are a bit more curious, I know I will not scratch every itch. Because I can't. Because we don't have every answer. When when a kid asks their parents a question and they provide an answer and it's not what this is, at least how I've seen it happen most often, it's not the, the answer they wanted, what's the, first, what's the very next question? Why? And then you give an answer and what's the very next question? Why? And then you give an answer. Why? And then you say, go to your room, right? Like that's kind of how it works. Because the reason is, like, one, you don't, you don't need the answer. You, you need what I've provided for you. But even when, when we're trying to, to argue for our reason for doing something, even if it's the right thing, we can't, as parents always, kids, just accept this for me for a second. We can't always explain why and, and answer why to the nth degree. I wish we could, but we can't. How much more so is that the case with God and what he has revealed to us? Once we get past what scripture provides as answers to the question of why, if we keep providing answers, we're just making stuff up. We're speculating and we try to do it the best we can, linking this, that, and the other scripture together. But there's only so deep we can go before we're just working on a God and putting together a God that that, that we have imagined. So we're going to look at this question of of providence and sin in Jesus in three steps. First, we're going to look at the fall of man. Then we're going to look at continuing sin. And then we're going to look at the end of sin. So the fall of man. Now the first thing we need to understand about the fall As you read the story, God creates everything. It's beautiful. He looks at at the end of each day. He looks and says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. He gets to the end, and and he makes Eve, and and it's very good. Everything is just fantastic. And then it says on the seventh day, God rested. And then the very next thing that happens, the very next thing that happens is Adam and Eve take from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eat of it. And they break the one rule that was given. So one thing we need to understand about this, as as we look at this story, one thing we can say is that that this wasn't the result of of God resting on the seventh day. It it wasn't the case that God spun the world up and got it going real fast and then went to do something else and then came back and was like, what what the heck happened? No, it, it wasn't a surprise to him. It wasn't outside of his control. How do we know that? Because we can know that. We can know that the fall of man was part of God's plan. How can we know that? Well, well, the Bible tells us. If you want to turn with me, we're going to be turning in our Bibles a lot, and I'll try to do my best to give you time to get there. But you can also just listen. 
if we read Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, these are the words that we read. Blessed be the Lord God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Think about what's being said there. God has foreordained our redemption before the foundations of the world. He has foreordained our redemption before the foundation of the world. Our redemption from what? Our redemption from sin. Through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses. On down in verse 11, he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Well, what Paul is telling us here is that this plan of salvation, that that was necessarily a plan of saving sinners, was put in place before the foundation of the world. That's how we can know that, no, the fall wasn't an accident. God wasn't surprised. He didn't go take a nap on the seventh day and then wake up from his slumber and look down and was like, what happened? This was his plan. Paul Helm says it this way, the Christian faith is unintelligible without a fall. For at the heart of the faith is redemption, the restoring of humankind's relationship with God in a way which vindicates the righteousness of God and issues in men and women accepted in Christ and renewed in character. His plan from before the foundations of the world was to redeem a people from sin for himself. The fall was on purpose. The fall was on purpose. Now, here's where the why questions start that we can't answer. Why did he do it that way? I don't know. I can't answer that. No one can answer that for you. It was his will. We can say that. We, we can say, because that's, that's how he wanted to work out this plan. Well, we can say it was for his glory. Because all things work together for his glory. The end of all things is the glory of God. We can give those kind of, kind of general, a little bit more vague answers. But at some point we have to answer with Paul when, when the Romans said, well, why did he make me like this? Who are we to answer back to God? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some vessels for honorable use and some for dishonorable use? At some point in this conversation, we have to step back and go, oh, yeah. We're talking about God. We're talking about the one who created everything. The one who upholds everything. The one who works all things for his glory and the good of his people. And that, in his wisdom, 
that we don't understand included the fall. That happened according to his will. The second point that I want us to look at is continuing sin. And maybe we, we think, okay, so, so he, he spun the world up this way. Like, this is how he wanted it to work. But what do we do with continuing sin? And the answer really isn't that different. Well, we go back to the story of Joseph that we read earlier and, and that I shared with the kids. He has this dream that, that his parents and, and his brothers are all going to bow down to him. And, and his dad, his mom and dad are a little bit annoyed by it, but they're not going to kill him. But his brothers are like, you know what? We can keep that from happening. We can kill you. His one sympathetic brother is like, well, let's not do that. Let's just like fake it, take the coat of many colors, dip it in blood and, and say that an animal got him, but let's sell him to these travelers. And so that happens. He ends up in, in Egypt. And we know the story. Even in Egypt, he sinned against it, ends up in jail. But every step of the way, we're told in, in, in the narrative of Joseph at the end of Genesis that God is with him and that God is directing his steps. And so he rises to power. Potiphar's wife gets him put in jail because he wouldn't sleep with her, because he's being honorable. And, and then in jail, he, he rises to power in jail and, and he's kind of in charge of everything in jail. And, the, and then the, 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 the baker, like they, and, and the, the, they go and, and they forget about him. But then he interprets this dream for Pharaoh. And he's out of jail now. And, and out, he rises to power again. Until he's, he's second in command. No one greater, no one with more authority in all the land of Egypt except Pharaoh himself. And he's in charge of this food collection program to stave off the coming fast. That, that, that in this prophetic dream vision... Pharaoh was told was coming. And so he, he manages that program perfectly. His brothers even have to come because the fast is so far reaching. They have to come ask him for food. And when they finally realize who he is, you know the story, they are freaking out. Their dad dies and they're like, man, I think that was the last layer of protection we had. And so they do exactly, notice, it's so funny. When we come back from sin, we do, we, this is how it always works. We always, it's the parable of the prodigal son. We come back groveling. Let me just be your servant. Husbands, we do this with our wives when we sin. We come back groveling. Let me just be your servant. I'm the worst of the worst. Wives, you, you do it too. Kids, you do it. Parents, we do it. With, that's just how we are. And that's what Joseph's brothers did. We're, we're your humble servants. Please don't kill us. And Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I don't like that. Can I be that honest? I don't like that God is at work even in and through and by what is evil to bring about his purposes. I hate it, in fact. I hate it for two reasons. I hate it because that means probably, and that's putting it mildly, I am going to be sinned against at some point in my life 
or someone I love is going to be sinned against at some point in my life, and I'm going to have to accept that God is at work in that. I also hate it because it means I'm going to sin against somebody else, and God's going to be at work in that. See, sometimes we can, we can kind of, at least in the abstract, accept that, yes, God's at work through, through sin out there. We, we can read the stories. We can read Joseph's story and be like, yes, we see how he intends evil things for good. We can read about the Assyrians and the Babylonians coming and toppling Egypt or, or Israel and say, yes, we see how he works bad things for good. We can read the story of Jesus being crucified and say, yes, we see how it works bad things for good. But when we read our story, we don't like that at all. And when our story becomes the one that that through our sin he's working out good things for his people, then we just feel like trash. But here's what we must understand. God is at work through even our own sin and through the sin of others against us and through the sin of others against others. To bring about his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And again, we're backed up into this question. Why? Why does he do it that way? I don't know. I can't answer that for you. But what I can comfort you with is this. In whatever way you've been sinned against... In whatever way you've sinned against others, God's perfect will is being worked out. You haven't fallen into some plan B for your life. It's still His perfect will that's being worked out. And that doesn't make our sin God's fault. James is very clear in the first chapter of his book that we all know and love, especially chapter 2. He's very clear when you sin, when you're tempted to sin, don't say that it's God tempting me. Because he can't be tempted and he doesn't tempt. But it's your flesh. And and so here we, we have this tension. That God is perfectly sovereign and he providentially rules and governs all his creatures and all their actions. Not just his people, all his creatures, all of creation and every action of creation. From the movement of the stars, things that seem so abstract and separated from us, to, to our breathing. He rules all of it for his purposes and by his design. We cannot offer an utterly satisfying explanation of how these things work together. But we can know that God's purpose is not thwarted in our lives or the lives of anyone else by ongoing sin. It's not. It's not. We must not limit God's use of sin only to the sin of others. To every other person in the world 
We are the other. If I can see how God might use your sin in your or my life or in somebody else's life to bring about his will, but I can't see how he might use my own sin or your sin in my life in the same way, we're either blind to the reality of our own sin or wildly, wildly arrogant in our self-assessment or both. Our sin is neither out of God's control nor excused from his accountability. With these two points, I, I want to take a little excursus before we get to the third point. In thinking about either the fall or continuing in sin, we must admit, as we have, that we are working with fairly limited knowledge. We only have what is revealed to us in God's Word. And so we very quickly get to those, but, but why? We very quickly get to those questions that we can't answer to, to, to full satisfaction. We must admit that we're working with fairly limited knowledge and, and, and that therefore we struggle to put things together and, and, and therefore we aren't capable of putting things together in this comprehensive way. And sometimes people will take that and say, oh, well, if you can't, if, if you claim to have a solution for evil in the world, but you can't explain all the ins and outs, if you can't provide a comprehensive answer, then that somehow undermines your entire worldview, your entire faith. Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, reminds us that our inability to provide a comprehensive explanation of evil in this world is not actually a strike against Christianity any more than it is a strike against any other worldview that also can't claim to provide a comprehensive explanation for evil in this world. That's one of the more common objections to Christianity, this problem of evil. But the reality is, that's a problem for everybody. No one has an explanation of it. No one has, everybody admits it. But no one actually has an explanation for it. So if it's a strike against Christianity, it's a strike against everything else as well. Our final point, the end of sin. The end of sin comes through Christ. That's right. It comes through Jesus. No other way. It does not come through God's temporal punishment of us for continuing sin. Hear that. The end of your sin won't happen. And, and, and it's not God punishing you to, to, to bring it about. The end of sin comes only through Jesus Christ. Does He sanctify us now? Yes. Does He discipline us like a loving Father? Yes. But the end of sin only comes through Jesus. Michael Horton again says it's always dangerous to interpret one's temporal circumstances as a sign of either God's favor or displeasure. We simply don't have enough knowledge to come to those conclusions. 
He goes on, we may not know how God will work our mistakes, our sins, our foolishness for our good or anybody else's and for his glory. However, we do know that he has triumphed over evil ultimately in Christ. This is why as we think about providence, we always have to end up at Jesus. Because any explanation we offer about providence and sin and how that works, if we abstract it from Jesus, it's utterly hollow. It's utterly empty. It offers nothing. While the completion of this work, this ending of sin, will not be found before glory, the Spirit has already begun this work in us. We do now have have this foretaste of it. In repentance, in confession, in putting off what trips us up and what entangles us, in, with the help of the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. But all of that is still only because of Jesus. Because He has brought it to an end and He has poured out His Spirit upon us. And so we can lean into that. So as we think about providence and sin and Jesus, we lean into the reality of God's providence. We find comfort knowing that we can't look at our lives, we can't look at what we've done or what's been done against us or what's happening out in the world in order to conclude whether or not we're on God's plan A or plan B. No, we're on, we're in, we're carrying out. God is carrying out His plan. And there's only one. And we can have that confidence. But we can also have the confidence that this painful reality of living in a world where God has no choice but to use sin and sinners to bring about his purpose is not how it will always be. There is an end to sin. And it's Jesus Christ and it's glory. And he will because he providentially rules everything. He will bring us there. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's the final comfort of this doctrine of providence. It's not up to you to finish the work of redemption and sanctification in your life. It's up to God. And He is capable and willing and actively doing just that as He unites you by His Spirit to Jesus Christ who made an end to all sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the comfort of your word, even as we deal with hard stuff that that we don't like to think about, realities that we don't like to accept, things that confuse us and frustrate us. Yet, Father, in your word, you have made known clearly to us that at no point, at no point, have things gotten out of your control. 
And so, Father, while we can't understand and answer in any comprehensive way all of these why questions, thank you for showing us from your word that the fall was according to your purpose. The ongoing sin of ourselves and others is according to your purpose. And the end of sin in Jesus Christ is according to your purpose. And your purpose will come to pass. Help us, Father, by your spirit to believe that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.